Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College, offering a fully online graduate-level certificate in learning differences and neurodiversity programs. Visit landmark.edu slash certificate to learn more. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, MindShift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Welcome to the MindShift Podcast, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Ki Sung. Educator Tricia Abarvia has been at the intersection of English instruction and identity, both for educators and students. She advocates for a more complete way of seeing ourselves, one another, and curricula. She's a co-founder of Hashtag Disrupt Text and just published a book titled Get Free, Anti-Bias Literacy Instruction for Stronger Readers, Writers, and Thinkers. She's on our podcast today to unpack bias, which is all around us, and to share tips on how teachers can enable students to improve their reading and writing skills. Stay with us. Talking about money can be so hard, especially when the person you're talking to is still learning how to do long division. That's why Million Bazillion, a Webby-winning podcast from Marketplace, is here to help. I'm Bridget, and with my fellow co-host Ryan, we help teach your little ones about complex topics like bankruptcy, climate change, and why there's so much gold at Fort Knox, and so much more. Listen to Million Bazillion wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. Trisha Abarvia, welcome to MindShift. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Patricia, you're a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion at a K-8 school, and you also warned us in advance that recess is about to begin, so listeners, please be understanding if you hear kids. Trisha, you also spent 20 years teaching high school English. Tell us, what motivated you to write your book, Get Free? 
Well, the short answer to that is my students, right? Um, I think that my work in the classroom, especially, was what motivated me to um, write this book for other educators. And when you say for your students, what were you seeing? I think about different stages in my own teaching life. Um, I think about the early career teacher who was Trisha in, you know, more than 20 years ago. And I think about the way I showed up in the classroom for my students then versus how I started to show up in the classroom as I became a more experienced teacher. And so I thought about the ways in which my students have really shaped me. And, you know, even though I may have the title of teacher in the classroom, I mean, I learn just as much um, from them every single day. And so when I think about writing this book for my students, I think about all the students that other teachers also have and how they might benefit from having their teachers do some of the work that I suggest and get free um, to do the kind of self-reflective, anti-bias instructional practices that I think my early career, Trisha, you know, teacher days could have really benefited from. Um, so I think I'm just trying to help students presently in classrooms and in the future, whether they're in my specific classroom or not, have a different kind of experience. You probably get this a lot, Trisha, whenever we broach the topic of bias, it's a common response for anyone to get defensive. Um, Can you explain to us what is bias? Yeah, so bias is something that I would teach in my classroom, actually. Um, And I would sort of define it really from more of a sort of the cognitive science viewpoint, which is to say that we all have biases. They are neither good nor bad. They're like mental shortcuts that we have. So, you know, when you think about, you know, I'm sitting here right now speaking with you and there are lots of different stimuli that are coming at me, right? I can think about the way in which like I'm sitting in the seat. I can think about the, the air in the room. I can think about the noise that's down the hallway. Um, all these different things are coming at me at once. And what our brain needs to do is to sort of focus. And we have these biases, these sort of like mental shortcuts that help us to understand what is what we need to focus on in the particular moment. Um, And that's what our brain likes to do. It takes a shortcut to get there. Now, sometimes these biases can lead us to faulty conclusions, but other times they can also be things that, you know, save our lives. Right. I mean, I don't need to stop and do slow thinking when it comes to seeing like a you know, like a large animal approaching me, right? Like that, I know immediately, my instinct takes over. Um, But when we think about all the different decisions that educators make at any given time and during the day, I think researchers said anywhere from, I've seen everything cited from like a few hundred to even like a thousand decisions in a day. Um, We don't stop to think about them. You know, we don't carefully weigh every single one and we don't let all the different stimuli like affect us. We, we, you know, we have to rely on a mental shortcut. And I think that um, when we think about bias, we have to think about the ways in which those biases are impacting us and informing our decision making, sometimes in potentially harmful ways. And in the first chapter of your book, you outline five biases that educators in particular are engaging in. Can you describe those? One bias is the curse of knowledge. And this bias basically is that, you know, the more that we we're sort of cursed by knowledge in the sense that once I learn how to 
do a specific skill or acquire a specific set of knowledge, we start to sort of lose the ability to appreciate what it is like to learn that skill or acquire that knowledge for the first time. So the example that I give in the book is that, um, you know, when I was first teaching, I thought my students were absolutely brilliant and they absolutely were too. I mean, I, it was the first time I was teaching any of the books that I had taught that first, my, you know, back in the early 2000s. And every idea that they offered me was, I just thought was absolutely brilliant because I had never heard them before. And as many English teachers know, you often um, teach the same books over and over and over again. And what happens over the years is that you as the educator acquire knowledge from your students and from your own work. You know, when you read a book, you know, however many times and discuss it like five times a day with students, you realize that in some ways there's only so much that can be you know, said about a book or but over the years, the ideas that students were sharing in class, their interpretations, um, it became more rare for these interpretations to be, or from my perspective, to seem new, right? Like, because I had sort of heard everything before. And so um, this curse of knowledge actually made it sort of in some ways harder for me to appreciate the ways in which my kids were bringing what was for them new knowledge and really original knowledge um, and instead, I was looking at it more from, um, you know, well, of course they would know that, right? So that's one, you know, simple thing, but I think is something that um, changes the way that we interact with kids. So one of the things that I did is um, I would always find opportunities to read something new with students to put myself in a learning stance with them. So I wasn't always relying on all the knowledge I had acquired over years uh, and sort of unfairly judging them on what they weren't bringing to a text. If you've been a classroom teacher for any number of years, you, I am sure you have heard seasoned teachers in a uh, department room say things like, well, kids these days, or, you know, um, kids used to be able to do X, Y, or Z. Um, but unfortunately, that kind of thinking and that kind of, um, you know, judgment on kids isn't really, isn't really healthy. It's based on this idea that kids were somehow better in the past. Um, and I think this can be especially hard or problematic when we think about the ways in which our student population is changing all around the country. If we have sort of these rosy colored glasses about what kids used to be able to do and unfairly start judging the kids in front of us, especially kids who may be coming, you know, if your classroom is becoming more diverse and you have a view of what kids used to be able to do before and, and now you're looking at kids and you're thinking, oh, well, you know, they don't have all the same skills or now they're always on their phones or now they're doing this and that. You know, that's a bias that we also need to be aware of because the truth is there are some things about kids that have just always remained the same. Like kids are kids at the end of the day. Um, so the nostalgia bias and I unpack how that can get in our way. Another bias that I talk about in the first chapter is the anchoring bias. And the anchoring bias is really interesting. In fact, it's this bias that um, happens when we are anchored to the initial information we receive about something. So the anchoring bias, when I think about it in schools, I think about the beginning of the school year and how at the beginning of the school year, 
we might be anchored to information about a student or students or groups of students um, that then disproportionately affect or inform the way we see those students from as the year goes on. Um, one clear example of this is, you know, like um, I used to do this thing where we would go around and share um, class lists with previous, with teachers who had taught this class the year before. And teachers would look at the list and we'd have all sorts of reactions like, oh, watch out for this kid or this student does X, Y, or Z, or this one's really great, right? They, we give feedback of to, and thinking that we're very, we were being helpful to our colleagues. And after, you know, it didn't take long for me to start to realize that, you know, this information more often than not did more harm than good because I would start to question in what ways this information, especially if it was negative information, unfairly informed the way I might be treating students or thinking about students. Um, and I think that's really hard. I think kids, especially at the beginning of the school year, we all deserve a chance to sort of start anew and have second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. And to have that kind of feedback, especially if it's negative, follow kids around and potentially anchor t future teachers' experiences of them to that particular like view, I think it's just unfair. Okay, Trisha, you've covered three biases. What's another bias you've seen in classrooms that, if addressed, can help students learn? Another one, of course, is in-group bias, which, you know, again, this, this, none of these things are like necessarily groundbreaking, but when you start to think about the ways in which they might just be impacting our relationships with kids, it can be negative. So in-group bias just occurs when we show preference for those who are similar to us, period, right? It's very natural to do. Like, I have to admit, like, I have a bias or had a bias for many years in my teaching for kids who were very similar to who I was when I was a student. So I was very quiet as a student. You know, I would be horrified if, if a teacher called on me without, you know, without me raising my hand. So I have, you know, I have a sort of special place when I look in my classroom for the kids who might also be sensitive to that. So you might have favoritism towards or give benefit of the doubt to kids who are more similar to you. Um, and I think it's important for teachers to sort of keep track of that, right? To do that self-reflective work around like, what are my identities? What makes me who I am? What are my relationships like with kids in the class? Is, you know, I might get along with certain kids or um, I might just treat certain students favorably or unfavorably depending on, um, well, I might say that it's because of their work or the way they're showing up, but let me actually think for a moment and step back and say, well, is there something else that could be potentially driving this? And one question that I ask in that chapter is, you know, when we think about the kids maybe that we don't have as um, strong of a relationship to, to what extent might that be because they are the ones who are also least like us, right? Or kids who are considered quote unquote troublemakers in school, you know, to what extent are those kids who are least like the ideal student in class? Trisha, you've talked about four biases. Let's review them real quick. The bias of knowledge, nostalgia bias, the anchoring bias, and in-group bias. What's the last bias you write about in your book? The last bias that I discuss in chapter one is the just world hypothesis, which I think is one that, you know, the term I don't think people might, people might not be as familiar with, but it's basically this idea that, you know, we believe that the world is an inherently just place 
that what goes around comes around, right? Like if I do this, then I get that. If I work hard, then I will get good grades. Um, that's the sort of very oversimplified equation of the just world hypothesis, that you get what you deserve. And I just think about how so much of our school system is built around this idea, like meritocracy, right? This idea that like you, you get what you deserve and therefore if you do well, then good things will happen to you. But then the other side of that is that if you're not doing well, then somehow you deserved that, right? And I think too often we might um, ignore or overlook the ways in which people's circumstances and different systems of oppression or unfairness and barriers might actually get in the way. So that bias is something that I... Um, I really try to unpack a bit in the first chapter to have teachers really sort of think about that because once you know about that bias, you start hearing teachers, um, you start hearing the assumption of that bias in the conversations we tend to have with kids. Knowing these five biases that you unpacked, how does that connect to helping students become stronger readers, writers, and thinkers? Can you make that connection? Sure. So I think... The longer that I taught and the longer that I teach, the more I realize that without having a strong anti-bias lens, like it's really hard to be a critical thinker because when we think about being a strong reader, writer, or thinker, right? We think about how we absorb a text, how we read and respond to different texts. And that text can be, you know, the book where they're reading in class. It could be a video that we're watching. It could even be outside of school and I'm just watching television or I'm watching the news or I'm scrolling my social media feeds. And we all have responses and reactions in the moment. And I think it's important for kids to be able to stop and reflect for a moment and think, okay, where is that response coming from? Like if I see something and it makes me very upset, if I see something that I profoundly disagree with, I might say, okay, well, this is because I have these values. This is because I have this evidence. This is because X, Y, or Z. But I think it's important to take a step back and say, how have I been socialized to have this reaction? Because biases at the end of the day are also things that we've been socialized to um, embody. One thing I hear from anyone pushing for liberation or anti-bias is to reframe the narrative. Like, you know, and, and the tools you're talking about for students sounds like also helps with this reframing of the narrative. Um, that so much of what students are taught are about you know the worst things that can happen to people, especially if they're not white. Um, and I think for teens in particular, you know, who are emotional and developing, there's this tendency to catastrophize. You know, to kind of oh, dwell yeah. on those worst things, mm -hmm. and with this mental health crisis that is pretty widespread in this country and all the media that we consume that has a lot of those worst things, how does thinking beyond the worst thing help students reframe and possibly get a more accurate, hopeful version of themselves? Yeah, thanks for um, raising that. You know, one of the books that I used to teach with my students was um, Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. In that book, there's a wonderful quote where in the very beginning that almost every time I taught it, kids would always tell me that that was one of their favorite passages. And it was really about how we are, we are more than the worst thing that we've ever done, right? Before I start teaching that book, though, I pose a question to kids and I ask them, you know, to write down like a list of, you know, things that they're really proud of, things that make them who they are, you know, like the, it's like the resume list, you know, all the sense of accomplishments and all the things you want people to know about you. 
And then I also asked them to write about a time that they didn't show up as their best selves, where they had an argument with a friend, maybe they lied, maybe they were mean-spirited, like all the worst, like think about the worst things, the, the worst version of themselves. And we that's the thing, we all have a worst version of ourselves, right? And they write that down. And so then I, then I asked them like, well, what's the truth? Like, is the list of all the positive things about yourself the truth? What about the list of all the negative things? Your worst version of yourself. Where's the truth here, right? And I'm speaking just in binaries right here, just for the, you know, the point of the exercise. But both of these lists are true, right? These are all things about us. But together, they form a more complete picture. And even then, there's a lot that's in between these two things, right? Between the very best and then the catastrophe of who we are, right? So there's a whole middle section, And so when we're doing this writing and we're thinking about this work and we're thinking about um, how we're interpreting the things that we're reading or we're absorbing the way um, the news that we're seeing, it's one of those exercises that I do with kids to help them see that there can never really be like like that idea of a single story, that we have to constantly seek multiple perspectives to have grace for ourselves when we think about mental health I think you know developmentally kids are really trying to figure out who they are and they think that this one thing is defining for them and you know I think the work that we do as educators is help kids see that no one thing can define who they are that they are beautiful messy complex human beings with so much in between and so many contradictions Um, and if they can have that kind of grace for themselves, which is so important, that sort of self-love, then I think that we have a better shot of being able to have that grace and that love for other people. If I can think to myself, okay, I'm a messy person and I have contradictions and I say things or do things that sometimes I'm not I'm not proud of, how can I afford that kind of grace and flexibility of thinking to the person who's now sitting across from me and maybe we disagree on things, but I still see them as a complex person who is worthy of dignity, right? So that complexity, I think that allows us the grace to see ourselves in more humane ways and to see others the same way too. And who doesn't want that for students and educators? Right. <laughs> Thank you, Trisha Abarvia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Trisha Abarvia is a co-founder of Hashtag Disrupt Texts. Her recently published book is called Get Free, Anti-Bias Literacy Instruction for Stronger Readers, Writers, and Thinkers. We'll have more minisodes coming down the pipeline to bring you ideas and innovations from experts in education and beyond. Hit follow on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. The MindShift team includes me, Ki Sung, Nima Gobier, Kara Newhouse, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, and Jennifer Ng. Our editor is Chris Hambrick. Chris Hoff is our sound designer. Additional support from Jen Chian, Katie Sprenger, Cesar Saldana, and Holly Kernan. MindShift is supported in part by the generosity of the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and members of KQED. Thank you for listening. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening 
because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.